Well, g'day, uh, everyone. My name's Dave. If we haven't uh, met, uh, lovely to see you here uh, this morning. Uh, I want to begin by speaking to you today about uh, perspective. And the word perspective means uh, viewing, how, how you view things. And I, I want to say um, all of us have a perspective which shapes uh, what we view. And, and, um, and it means that it shapes how we see things that happen. Let me give you a small example. And I want to warn you, uh, if you're a visitor, this is going to involve your involvement. You're going to be embarrassed. No, you're not. But just pay attention. Very simple. Let me, let me explain. What colour is this dress? Have you seen that before? You know what I'm talking about. Now listen, five years ago, can you believe it was five years ago? Time on the internet, there's like dog years, it just zips by. Five years ago, the internet exploded because it turns out everyone sees this dress a different colour. Um, that there's a group of people who see it one way, the correct way, and there's a group of people who see it differently, the wrong way. So I just want to do a bit of a poll, a bit of a quiz, a bit of a test, see which of you are right and wrong. Uh, and let's see how we go. So I want you to put your hands up in the air. If you think this dress is white and gold, put your hand up in the air. I knew you were good people. I knew it. If you believe this dress is blue and black, put your hand up in the air. Oh. I remember looking at this and seeing it on the internet at the time, and my wife insisted to me it was blue and black. And I was just like, what is wrong with you? What are you? Go see an optometrist. Go see an ophthalmologist. I don't care who you have to see. Sort that out. Then we Googled it, and it turns out the dress actually is blue and black. Can you believe that? I couldn't, but the designer of the dress confirmed it, allegedly, that it is actually blue and black. Now, the reason why we see it differently is that all of us have something going on in our eyes which means we bring with us to the viewing something which shapes what we see and we're unable to see what the others are seeing. It's impossible for us to even know that we're doing it. Um, I want to say that we do the exact same thing in life, don't we? Um, when we view the reality of life and what takes place, uh, we have a perspective which shapes everything. And I, I want to go further. I, I want to say it's possible for us to be so shaped by the perspective that we hold that it can be impossible for us to know what's true because we're so shaped. We can look at circumstances and situations and believe one thing, um, yet be completely wrong and have no idea that we're doing it and yet still be wrong. Um, we, we see this a lot uh, in the perspectives in our culture and society around um, us, Christians, if you're a Christian here today, what it means uh, to be a Christian, um, the Christian life. As many of you will be aware, of course, um, there's different perspectives that people have about Christianity, but generally in Australian history, uh, the perspective has on large been slightly negative. Um, not horrible, but just a little bit, well, what are you guys all about anyway? Um, many people have a perception of the Christian life as something boring, restrictive, a, a set of rules and, and do's and don'ts which regulate your behaviour, maybe because you've done something wrong or you're that kind of person. Um, and so what that means is people view what we're doing as, as just weird. There must be people driving past church at the moment, looking in at us, going, what are you doing? Why aren't you sleeping? They're probably not driving in, they're sleeping in, thinking of us, going, what are they doing? Why would they be doing that? It's a little bit like um, when I walk past people swimming uh, at six o'clock in the morning at Terrigal. Now, there's a group of swimmers from this church who do that. Anytime that happens, my wife is one of them, and anytime I see her in the morning, you know, rubbing sleep out of her eyes, and yet getting ready to go and swim, I just go, what are you doing? 
What have you done wrong that you're trying to make amends for by doing this in life? Other people view this the same thing about cricket, but they're wrong. I drive past a cricket game and think, oh, those lucky, those guys. What I'd give to spend 12 hours standing out in the grass. It was amazing. But of course, um, all jokes aside, there is a different perception of Christianity within our culture um, that is more negative. And it's rising um, in its, um, well, the amount of people that view this way. There, there is a perception by some in our culture, not all, but some, with loud platforms and loud voices who say that Christianity isn't just slightly negative, that it's bad. It's toxic. Um, it's oppressive to not just individuals, but cultures at large, that, that it oppresses people, that it's intolerant, that it crushes diversity. I want to say two things in response to those perceptions about uh, the Christian life. Uh, The first one is, it might surprise you, um, I get it. I really get it. I understand those perspectives. Um, And and I empathize with the people who who hold them. And I, I want to explain why a little bit later on. But secondly, and I want to say this as clearly as possible, um, I believe firmly that they are completely and utterly wrong that they've misread the data, that to view the Christian life this way is to look at reality, to be skewed by perception, and to not actually see the truth. See, the Word of God makes it clear for us that rather than being toxic or oppressive, um, boring, and and, um, uh, a set of strict rules and, and regulations, living as a Christian is the best way to live. Across a lifetime, across communities and cultures, across the globe, across generations, into eternity, hands down, living as a Christian is the best way to live. Um, The challenge that we have is that from the outside looking in, it often doesn't look like that. And I want to say the other challenge that we have is from the inside, sometimes it doesn't even feel like that. And yet it's even, and I want to say even sometimes, especially in those times when it doesn't feel like it, that actually God's word remains true, that that this is the best way to live. So what we're going to do today is um, look particularly at the book of Proverbs. So if you've got Proverbs uh, open, go over to Proverbs chapter 4, particularly at the book of Proverbs, uh, and see and identify exactly what it is that God tells us about living life and, and why living life God's way allows life to flourish. And then spend some time thinking about how that sort of applies itself in our lives and the lives that we live and uh, the way we interact with other people. But I also want to flag for you before we do that, that there is a twist coming, uh, a twist uh, in the tale of what we're looking at today, which actually changes everything. Um, changes perspective, changes perception, changes how we understand um, what life is all about anyway um, for us and for others as well. So come to Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 4. Let me tell you a little bit about Proverbs. Proverbs is a 3,000-year-old book, primarily written by a man called King Solomon, but there was other authors as well. Um, And and one of the chief purposes of of Proverbs is to provide clear promises of good things for God's people, instructions for living an effective life. You've got a good kind of summary, if you like, uh, of of the intention of it in chapter 4, verse 20. Have a look at verse 20 to 22. Um, Let me read, read this to you. My son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. Those two words I want you to pay attention to, life and health. That by paying attention to the word of God, it allows life to flourish. 
It is living your best life, but also health. There are very practical, pragmatic overflows into our life. Um, This is not theoretical, but deeply practical, practical advice for living. I want to give you a couple of examples, and these are examples that have come from my life. I grew up in a family where my mum and dad knew the Bible, they knew Proverbs, and they were prone to repeating them. So I've chosen three um, that they said from time to time. Let me show you the first one. Chapter 6, verse 9. Chapter 6, verse 9 is where we're going. If you don't have a Bible, let me read it for you. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come on you like a thief, scarcity like an armed man. Usually by the time mum had got the sluggard, I realised what she was saying, get up out of bed. If you do not work, you will not not get money, you cannot eat, you you need to work. Thousands of years before Jordan Peterson was saying it, here we have the book of Proverbs, get out of bed, get to work. Let me show you something else, chapter 10, chapter 10 verse 1. Now, I'll let you work out um, which of these ones was related to me. Anyway, let me, let me read them. A wise son brings joy to his father, but a foolish son brings grief to his mother. You do not live in a bubble. How you act affects the lives of other people. It affects um, the lives particularly of people who care about you, who love you. Finally, uh, come over to, all the way over to 26, chapter 26. Um, oh, I remember this one. Chapter 26, verse 11 is where we're going. I this is just, it's repeated in the New Testament as well, but let me. As a dog returns to its vomit, so fools repeat their folly. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. That's great. Learn from your mistakes. Don't go back and back and back doing the same thing again, same thing again that has caused destruction and ruin in your life. Learn from your mistakes. Come back with me to chapter 4. What what you notice uh, as you go through the book of Proverbs, but not just Proverbs actually, um, there's three whole books in the Bible um, uh, that are considered to be wisdom literature. Job, which we'll be looking at, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. um, Is that the word that's used to articulate the advice that we're given here is the word Wisdom. Uh, wisdom uh, is mentioned all throughout chapter 4. The subtitle that the, um, uh, that the Bible producers have, have given to us is, is actually a good one. Uh, it's not always the case, but get wisdom at any cost. Wisdom is something that is given to us from God uh, and is highlighted here as being of deep, deep importance. Uh, have a look at verse 7 and you see a hint of how important wisdom is for us to, to understand. Verse 7 of chapter 4. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. Though it costs all you have, get understanding. Now, what that means is that none of us have wisdom intrinsically. We're not born with it. It's something we need to get. But it's of such value and such importance that even though it costs us everything, we must get it. Now, the question is, what is it? How do you define it? Uh, well, the final word of that, that verse is a key one, understanding. Get understanding. Whatever wisdom is, it involves understanding. But understanding what? Well, it's actually not uh, what, but whom. 
Chapter 9, verse 10. Let me read for you. Chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Now, the fear of the Lord... If you've never heard that expression before, that might be a striking thing to hear, fear of the Lord. And even as Christians, it can be a, a... a confusing term. The fear of the Lord is an expression um, all throughout the Bible, which means the reverence of God. And that means um, understanding that God is the creator and the king of the universe, holy and righteous. Um, understanding that he is the one in control. He is the one who has determined all things. And out of that understanding, out of that reverence, the understanding of his power comes reverence, I should say, comes how we should feel awe, respect, praise and worship. God is the source of all reality. He has made all reality. There is no reality about outside of which he has made. And so what is the, the fear of the Lord? Well, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What that means is understanding these things is the foundation upon which all other wisdom is built When God speaks, as he does to us in his word, he opens our eyes to reality, to what's really going on in life. And so the wise person is the one who understands life through the reality that God has revealed to us, that God gives to us. So what is wisdom? Well, well, um, I hope this definition is, is, is one that's memorable for you. Wisdom is understanding reality. And then choosing to live rightly within that reality. Having your life shaped, your mind, your soul, but also your actions shaped by the perspective of truth, of reality that God gives to us in his word. Let me try and explain it and illustrate it. I have uh, four sons, four little boys who you might see after church uh, who run around and cause mayhem generally. Stealing biscuits. They're obsessed with those biscuits. And they're always having a go at them. Anyway, uh, um, a year ago... um, my, th- my, four- well, who's three? my three-year-old, Jesse, um, I was in here talking after church, uh, chatting her in a way, uh, and, I- and I heard someone playing the drums, like straight after church. And I was like, what's going on? I look up, and there's Jesse. He's smaller than the bass drum, but he's there. He's actually pretty good. I thought, yeah, it's good. And everyone having conversations was like, what is going on? What? Interrupted, disrupted by this noise. However, then something interesting happened. As they saw his little head poking over the top. It was your fault. You encouraged him. Some people were like, yay! I'm like, no! Yay! Everyone's like, that's beautiful, that's so cute. Why is that cute? Because he's three. What do three year olds know? Nothing. We know that. Three year olds have no understanding of reality, of how to act, what's appropriate, what's inappropriate. They have no concern for other people. <laughs> For their likes, their needs, their wants, their expectations. There's no expectations of behavior. And so we see that sort of thing. We're like, oh. But imagine this scenario. Today. Today. After church. Immediately. Song finishes. Rosie gets up. We say goodbye. I run up on stage. And I start banging. Oh, that was pretty good. And I start banging away on the drums as loudly as possible. Disrupting all of your conversations. Let me ask you, is that still cute? In fact, it's the opposite, isn't it? 
it's actually the sign that something's wrong. There's something off in my behaviour. Why? Because I'm 41. So you would think that by this stage I've understood reality. How to act in the light of the reality that's around us. My friends, wisdom is understanding reality, life. And then, in the light of that understanding, choosing to live rightly within the reality that you have. Now, I want to say there's several consequences as a result of thinking about life this way, of understanding life this way, and they're both ones that are radical statements. They're both ones that are radical consequences in the face of the culture that we live in. Number one, reality is not what you make it. Instead, reality is what it is. Reality is the way that it is. You see, we live in a culture, of course we all know this, that has so diluted the concept of truth that, that truth is now nothing more than, it's almost theoretical. Your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, and as long as our truths don't hurt each other, or well, you can have your truth, I can have my truth, it doesn't really matter. Um, you, you know, The very concept of my truth, I hope that's an oxymoron. It does not work. My truth, truth is true. Whether or not you believe it or not, that, that's what makes truth, truth. And yet... The Word of God is very, very clear that reality, despite what our culture might tell us constantly, it does not, it's not Plato. It doesn't bend and mold and, and shape itself around whatever we want it to be. It's not subjective. Reality is the way that it is. It is what it is. It is what God says it is. And that leads to the second consequence I want you to understand. And this one is truly offensive, potentially. In the face of understanding the clear, concrete case of reality, what that means is that it's very, very possible to live life the wrong way. We're not all living life the same way. There is a right and a wrong way to live. And if you try to understand the reality of our existence, the reality of your life, without understanding God as the foundation upon which all reality is built, without fearing Him, then you'll never get life right. You'll never live a wise life. You will spend your life pursuing things that actually ultimately have no value and meaning. You may be a success in any number of things in all of your life, And yet you've spent your time pursuing and attaching meaning to things that are actually meaningless. It's wasting life. Building your life upon a foundation that collapses and and falls. Have a look at verse 18 and 19 of chapter 4. There's there's an illustration of what we're talking about here. A a staggering picture. The path of the righteous is like the morning sun, shining every brighter till the full light of day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. My friends, the unapologetic assessment of a life lived ignoring God's wisdom, not acknowledging Him as the source of all life, is wickedness. Jesus uses the word foolishness. Ignoring God or understanding and hearing His wisdom but choosing not to obey it, not to to put it into effect in your life. Now, just press pause. Hold on to it. Press pause. Let's just step back and and understand. I hope you can see that God makes it clear that his way is the best way to live. The path of righteousness leads to life and to health, um, to flourishing in life. But 
we, one of the wonderful parts about being human beings is we can now sit back and look around us, look within us and say, well, what does the evidence say? If this is true, if God's way really is the best way, surely that would show itself out in the world. If being a Christian is the best way to live a life, well, um, what has the last 2,000 years shown? What does what um, the lives that, that we live show? Well, I want to say there's, there's two things at play. On one level, it's actually incredibly difficult to argue with um, the positive impact that Christianity has made across the globe for 2,000 years. And in fact, when people do, uh, if you read, um, you know, I won't say the part. If you read uh, particular journalists and particular people who have an axe to grind against the Christian faith, religion in general, well, what you'll see uh, is that they do try and sabotage, they do try and undermine the impact of Christianity, but it's such an incoherent, unhistorical um, uh, fallacy sort of cobbled together that it's actually symptomatic of a perspective skewing and morphing reality. Um, there is no way to look at the impact of Christianity over 2,000 years um, without realising the enormous positive impact that it has made on individuals and cultures and communities. Now, non-Christian historians are some of the loudest defenders that we have. Tom Holland is probably the best-known ancient historian in the world at the moment. He's got a series of great books I highly recommend. One of them is about the Christian faith and the impact of Christianity called Dominion. Now, I'm going to just paraphrase and summarise what he says. No single group, this is what he says about uh, Christians, us, um, no single group in human history has contributed more to education, literacy, healthcare, women's rights, the destruction of slavery, the equality of the races, genders, the protection of children and the cause of charity than Christians. To this very day, no single group on the planet provides more health care, education, charity and welfare. Much of this happens in the poorest countries in the world, indeed often where country, countries where Christianity itself is illegal. Christians volunteer more, adopt children, foster children more, give more money more often to both faith and non-faith-based charities than any other single group of humans in the history of the world and on the planet today. That's our family. And not only that, on a sociological, kind of psychological level, or whatever you want to call it, um, Harvard University did a study that stretched over 75 years uh, looking at what makes a good life. And one of the reports they made um, was that, uh, certainly within the Western world, which was where the subjects were from, um, that there is a direct correlation between regular active church attendance and both health and happiness in life. The correlation between life satisfaction and contentment and regular church attendance uh, is undeniable. Christians are, uh, um, <laughs> are less likely to be victims of crime, less likely to commit crimes, less likely to have bad habits which lead to early death, more likely to have healthy marriages, healthy relationships with children. Here's a good one. We're less likely to be murder victims and be murderers. Hey, <laughs> safe place to be. <laughs> But if that's true, if all of that is true, and I also want to say there's the personal aspect where any one of us who are Christians here today could personally testify to the work of God in our lives, the positive impact of Jesus on our lives, being a Christian is the best thing I've ever done in my life. But if that's true, why doesn't it look like it? Why wouldn't outsiders look at us and say, I want what they have more often? Why has the latest census poll shown that for the first time ever, less than 50% of Christians, 50% of the country are saying that they're Christian, that, that that number has been replaced by people saying no religion, that people are abandoning Christianity? 
Not more to the point, why doesn't it often feel like it? If, if following God's wisdom leads to health and to life, why are Christians the most persecuted group on the planet? How come life is still hard, suffering is still painful, and often, let's be honest, often the hardest part of it all is our faith. So how can following Jesus actually be the better life? Well, I want to say those are excellent, excellent questions. Um, but ones that point, they point us to something that um, all of us need to understand, a twist that actually changes everything about how we both view and live our lives. Have a look at verse 7, and we see a hint of it here in verse 7. I'll read this out loud in case you don't have it in front of you, but but listen to verse 7. See if you can pick it up. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. Though it cost all you have, get understanding. Wisdom is so important that the author tells you to sell everything, give everything away in order to get it. Now, how on earth... Could that be a true statement? How on earth could that actually make any sense? How could it possibly be true that wisdom is so important that you'd give everything up in order to get it? Well, the only reason that wisdom could be worth everything is if this life is not all there is. You see, if this life is it, then all wisdom can benefit is the, the material produce of today. But once it's done that, once it's done that, well, what's the point? But if this life is not all there is, then everything changes. Now, remember the definition of wisdom. Do you remember? Understanding reality. Understanding the reality that we live in, living rightly within that reality. You see, the question that all of us need to answer, that all of us need to know, is what is the reality that we actually live in? What is truly going on in this world? And to answer that, come over to Luke 9. That was the the reading we had from the New Testament, Luke chapter 9. And we have a famous interaction where um, um, Jesus um, identifies himself by asking his disciples to identify who he is as the Messiah. Um, He tells them his identity and then he he tells them his mission, his intent, his content for life of what he's going to go out to achieve. Now, I I want you to take note, he pulls the crowd to him. Verse 22 of chapter 9 of Luke, he he calls the crowd to him. Um, um, Before he does it, though, in verse 22, he tells his disciples exactly what the content of his life would look like. Look at verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now, let me ask you just in the silence of your mind, how would you define Jesus' life from that description? Suffering, rejection, death. Yes, life to come. Yes, hope but not before suffering, rejection, and death. Why would Jesus put himself through that? Why would he go through that? Because he knew it was worth it. Look at that word must. He must be killed. Jesus knew it was only through his suffering and his death that we may have eternal life because he took the punishment we deserve for our sin 
on his own shoulders. You see, the reality of our existence, the reality of life that Jesus offers to us is that there are two dimensions to this life. Yes, here and now on earth, but also the eternal future in heaven or in hell. The life Jesus lived when he was on this earth was shaped by eternity. Eternal realities were eternal priorities to Jesus. He shrugged off earthly prestige. He shrugged off attempts to make him the king of the little world that he was part of at the time in order to achieve eternal glory for those who deserve it the least for us. Now look what he says in verse 23. Then he turns to the whole crowd and he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Let me ask you again, in your mind, how would you summarize what Jesus says there? (coughs) Suffering, denial, death. In John chapter 15, Jesus goes further and he says, the world will hate you because it hated him first. But then look at verse 24 and 25. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? What Jesus is saying is that if you prioritize the here and now over the eternal, if the most important thing to you is today then you will not get the life that he follows, the life that he offers. You will not get eternal life because you do not see the need of repentance and faith. You ignore the fear of the Lord. God is the foundation of what he says about your spiritual reality. But if you do trust in him for tomorrow, the eternal tomorrow, then he promises eternal life, a promise secured in his blood and proven by his resurrection. Life forever worth far more than anything this world can offer or throw at you. So what is the reality of the world that you and I live in? Well, for us, 2,000 years odd on from Jesus, we live in the shadow of the cross and the empty tomb and awaiting the second coming, the last days. We live as the beneficiaries of the salvation offered to us by Jesus, but awaiting the judgment to come. Jesus' death and resurrection secures our eternal life. And so the reality of the world that you and I live in is that we know this world is not our home. It's not all there is. We have eternal life as Christians, a future of far greater worth than anything in this world. But we also know the reality for non-Christians, that what they face is eternal judgment, unless they take up the offer that Jesus has given them. Do you see that? So the question is, if, if, if the reality is 
those things, what does it look like for us to live um, wisely within this reality? And, and I want to point out just, uh, just two um, practical things that I think, two ways that it can shape our thinking, uh, but all spring from the same principle. So I'm going to say a principle that I think we need to hold to and then uh, two uh, practicalities uh, that flow out of it. The principle is this. It means allowing the promise of the future to shape the reality of the present. Living wisely in the shadow of the cross and the the empty tomb means allowing the promise of the future to shape the reality of the present, prioritizing the eternal world to come over the present one. Let me suggest how how we can see this play out um, in in both the way that we view and live in our own life, but also the way that we view other people as well. Firstly, um, think about yourself. Normally not a challenge, is it? You know, one of the greatest challenges that we face, as, as Christians, non-Christians face this as well, but from a different perspective, one of the greatest challenges we face is that we live in a world that is deeply committed to the idea that this life is all that there is. It is deeply committed to focusing on here and now, the material and the earthy. And what that means is that with this mindset, everything that happens here on earth is of deep, deep significance. Everything here is what matters most because this is all that it is, in other words. Now, I want to say it's very, very easy for us to be drawn into that thinking. Um, And it is absolutely true that we say this life still does matter. Um, Things that happen here on earth are important. But what can happen and does happen is that the here and now, the today, grows and grows and grows in importance within our hearts and our souls, our dreams and desires. So we end up thinking nothing else matters. And perhaps, you know, it might be, um, you look at the the cultural change, the cultural wars happening around uh, our country and the Western world, and you think, well, the biggest problem the world faces is political and cultural. And so the biggest solution must be political and cultural. I need to spend my time dedicated to social causes to fix the problems of this world. That's a great thing, but is that it? Or perhaps, and far more common, um, it's to mimic the obsession with comfort, Success, status, and money that this world has as primary importance. Kind of an idea of building heaven here on earth. But the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us this world is not our home. It's no one's home. And to live that way is foolishness. It's investing all of your efforts and energies into a thing, into a process that you know will never give you what you want. It can't. And tragically, it can enslave you so easily as you do it. So what does it look like to live with eternity in mind? For the eternal truths to shape our perspective on things. Well, I want to say that eternal truths that Jesus promises those who trust in him give us freedom. They they offer us freedom to live life the way that we're meant to. Um, Around 20 years ago, uh, I had a season of cricket in... um, uh, Western Sydney cricket competition around 19th grade or something. It was terrible. And um, I was in the worst cricket team in the world. We were horrific, horrible, horrible team. Um, we lost every single game, uh, but there was a particular team that didn't just beat us, they destroyed us and bullied us at the same time. And we ended up having a lot of argy-bargy in, in the team. Now, if you've played cricket with me, you will know that is not a rare occurrence. I'm looking at someone who knows that. Um, uh, but I was even worse 20 years ago, and it used to get very fired up. This team just smashed us. They sledged us all the time. 
We lost to them twice, they demolished us. But there was a third game, which was completely different. On the third time we played them, we lost every game that's in. We didn't go into the game agitated and angry, because we used to be that way before we played this team. And this, this time we went in happy and, and joyful and, uh, you know, cock-a-hoop and woo. Um, we didn't respond to their sledging with sledging back, but we sort of laughed and, oh, you. You know, we bantered with them and so on and so forth. We batted first, got around 100, very low amount. Terrible. We were going to get smashed. We didn't care. We didn't care. Then they went into bat, and for the first five overs, they didn't lose a wicket. If you don't know anything about cricket, I'm so sorry that you don't know anything about cricket. To echo the Proverbs, get into it. No. After five, after 20 minutes of their time batting, um, they were going to beat us. We still didn't care. Why? Well, the thing I forgot to mention was, I have a brother who was a professional cricketer. He was, at one point, one of the fastest bowlers in Australia. He was paid to throw a red ball hard at people's heads, and he did it very, very successfully. He's six foot a million. He was an incredible cricketer. Now, normally, the competition he played on was across two weekends, but he had a wedding on the first weekend, so he couldn't play in his team on the second weekend. So I said, Steve, could you? And he agreed to come and play. Now, this is before I was a Christian, I must say, but we weren't allowed, of course, for him to play, so we had to change his name, and we called him Ben. Okay, so Ben... um, (laughs) And the Ben who was in our team was an Indian guy, so this was very confusing if you knew who Ben was, but Ben, um, he, he batted, when he batted, he batted left-handed, and he's right-handed, you know, so he deliberately did badly, and they had no idea. We didn't put him on the bowl at first, but we knew, oi, oi, there he is, and then after five overs, Ben, and all of us went, and I came to first slip, which is next to the wicketkeeper, I and my brother, off a 10-foot run-up, you know, and you saw this batsman just, he matched the colour of his clothes. What? <laughs> Second ball, he edges it. It comes to me. I dropped it. <laughs> I also broke my finger in the process. The third ball, it whacks the guy on the foot. How's that for LBW? The umpire, who's a batsman for the other team, gave him not out. Again, if you don't know cricket, I'm so sorry about this, but... Um, he goes, oh, he hit it. The guy's writhing on the ground. He's got a broken foot. He hit him in the foot. Stephen bowled out the entire team in two overs. <laughs> Pew! You see, knowing the end transformed the present. Knowing the joy to come made everything okay. <laughs> Suddenly, all their little words, all their sledges, all their everything, oh, what do we care? We're going to destroy... Now, I want to say to you, very differently. The promise of the reality to come must transform our present, you see. What can this world throw at us in comparison to the eternity that is ours? Jesus has won the victory. We don't need to sweat the small stuff. We're free to live, free to be free, free of the enslavement that the world offers. Now, finally, very, very quickly, it does lead to the second thing I want to point out which is that our priorities in life must not be shaped by eternal, sorry, earthly desires, but eternal ones, not just as we think about ourselves, but also about other people. Um, eternity, the reality of eternity, must mean we are willing and must be willing to do anything it takes for others to have life. Even those who oppose us, that we realise opposition and hostility towards Christianity is not a symptom of them being correct, 
It's not a symptom of them being too far gone. It's a symptom of spiritual darkness, of spiritual hopelessness, that they need Jesus. And so this reality calls us to do things which may appear dangerous and foolish. It may look risky and stupid. And yet eternity means we must be willing to be thought of as fools so others become truly wise. Now that's, that's one thing with the people we don't really like, but I want to put to you, what about the people you love the most? Let me ask you, what is it that you most want for the people that you love the most? What matters the most? What do you want for them? Let me say a particular word to, to parents. When you think of your kids, what is it that you want? It's very common that we make decisions for our children that show, that show clearly uh, how much we prioritise their education and sporting prospects. There's nothing wrong with that. But do you prioritise those things over their spiritual health? What matters most, their eternity or a scholarship to the right school? Come on. My friends, what do the things of this world matter? The good and the bad things of this world, they're not the main game. Everything that happens here is a side issue. You can have all the wins you want, but you'd give them all up, wouldn't you? So someone should see reality. And indeed, that's exactly what our Lord Jesus Christ did so we could. I said at the start that living as a Christian is the best way to live over generations and eternity and hands down. And what I want to say to you is that this is not because it makes us the healthiest and the happiest people, although it sometimes does, not because it means we give the most to charity and social issues, certainly not because it makes you popular, it certainly won't. The best life that God offers us is the life that is free, free from the slavery to this world, to the desires and fears of this world, because our tomorrow is secure. We can be blessed by the good things of this life, but not be enchanted by them. You can lose them all and it not destroy you. You can no longer ride the wave of circumstances and circumstances and, and situations in life to give you the happiness that you want, the right status, the right suburb, the right house, because no matter what, you know that it all rusts and, and falls away. Your future is secure. When illness, sickness, and death raise their heads, when grief and suffering batter against us, we do not need to despair because this death, this world is not our home. Our future is secure. It's made secure by Jesus, the one who endured suffering, mockery, pain and torture, who went to the cross, dying the death of a common criminal, who to the world looked like a fool, and yet through his foolishness made us wise. I'll finish with the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the message, you know this, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for every good gift you give to us, uh, that you are uh, the God who loves to give us good things. Uh, Father, we pray that we could not be consumed with the things of this world, not be captured um, by what this world offers, but rather live free, free from slavery to what the world says. That we could live with eternal priorities, that we could live fixing our eyes on the unseen, the eternal truth that is ours in Jesus. And for anyone here who does not know Jesus as Lord and Saviour, Lord, I pray that they would come to know and love you and be saved. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen.
And friends, I'd love, as Rosie said, to invite you along to life. Take that card home with you. If, if you don't know about Jesus, we'd love to see you or bring someone along uh, who doesn't. We'd love to see you as well.